0: This is the Notable Speeches podcast and we're grateful that you've chosen to listen. Today a speech by author and audio producer Ken Myers, longtime host of the Mars Hill Audio Journal, which has been in production since 1993. It was a podcast of sorts long before podcasting technology being distributed originally on cassette tapes sent in the mail. According to the Mars Hill Audio Journal website, the program encourages conversations about faith, faithfulness, and culture and tries to describe what cultural life, its practices, beliefs, and artifacts might look like if it was the product of thoughtful Christian imaginations. Earlier in his career, Ken Myers was the arts and humanities editor for Morning Edition from National Public Radio. He is also the author of the book All God's Children and Blue Suede Shoes, subtitled, Christians and Popular Culture, published by Crossway. This address by Ken Myers was recorded in April 2019 at a Christ and Culture lecture event in Bangor, Maine. His speech is titled, In Light of the Logos, Creation, the Incarnation, and the Christian Imagination.
1: What I hope to do tonight is to introduce some connections between central theological themes that address our earthly human experience and that aspect of cultural life which involves imagination and imagination is a much bigger part of our life than is just restricted to what we call the arts. I've been involved with the arts one way or another f- since I was in college actually before that but I, I majored in film theory and criticism and involved in film production in college and then went to work at National Public Radio as a producer in their arts and performance department. And while I was in college, was struck by the conflict between Christians and the arts at the time, and that began a lot of my intellectual musings, trying to understand why there was such a uh, antithesis between faithful Christians on the one hand and uh, the world of the arts. Fundamentalists and evangelicals in the 20th century were not known as great enthusiasts for the arts or champions of the imagination. They typically treated cultural life in general as something deserving of suspicion and quarantine. American churches have been very attentive to spiritual and moral matters, but have tended to surrender most aspects of cultural life to secular and often anti-Christian forces. American Christians are sometimes shocked that they live in such a faithless culture, and yet for decades they practiced an effectively cultureless faith. Or to adjust my terms a bit, modern Christians have often affirmed a worldless faith, that is a faith that has very little to say about our life in the world, even as they have allowed a faithless world to take shape. Unintentionally, modern Christians gave permission to the world to be faithless by accepting the notion that the gospel is a private and personal matter and not a public and cosmic message. Shortly after I finished college, I uh, somehow got a job at, at NPR at the national headquarters in Washington. In this first job that I had, I was editing interviews and commentaries by and about some of the most creative people in the world. And during that time, I was also very active in the church I'd been attending with my family since I was in fifth grade. And this meant that I was spending Monday through Friday with people who were intensely involved in the arts, but generally indifferent to, if not actively suspicious of, the beliefs and practices of Christians. And on Sundays, I worshiped and fellowshiped with people who regarded the arts and artists nervously and sometimes with hostility Another way of describing this experience is that on Sundays I spent time with people who believed in creation, while during the week I worked with people who believed in creativity. My church friends were deeply committed to the first clause of the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. My friends in church believed in a creator and they described the world as a creation, but in general, I think they were more eager to defend the fact of creation than they were to explore the consequences and ramifications of creation's nature and meaning in their everyday lives. Meanwhile, my colleagues at NPR were almost all people who did not order their lives around belief in a maker of all things. But they did believe, and for some of them in an almost religious way, they did believe in creativity. In fact, many of them may have been willing to ascribe redemptive power to human creativity made evident in the arts. And I began a lifetime of reading and study trying to understand how we'd gotten here. How was it that the church had generally allowed its concern with redemption to eclipse the theme in both Old and New Testaments of the goodness and givenness of the creation and with the consequences that this has for human creativity. And meanwhile, how was it that modern Western culture outside the church had abandoned its belief in a creation that was ordered and given meaning by its maker, uh, even as it tried to sustain a belief in human dignity and creativity. So even though my church life and my life in the arts seemed to be animated by opposing assumptions, I gradually came to realize that they both suffered from a diminished and atrophied appreciation for the meaning and meaningfulness of creation, for the way in which the meaningfulness of creation takes the shape of beauty. Modern Christians, much like ancient Gnostics, have often assumed that they could relate to God entirely apart from any thoughtful and deliberate relation to creation. Modern secularists, meanwhile, assume that they can relate to creation, which they relabel nature, without recognizing or honoring the creator in any way. For both sides, creation tends to become raw material, natural resources, meaningless stuff that awaits human creativity to achieve value and significance. So what is denied by unbelievers and neglected by many believers is the fact that creation is an epiphany. Creation is a revelation of God's glory and goodness. The heavens declare the glory of God and God's eternal power and divine nature can be perceived in the things he has made. Throughout the scriptures, especially in the wisdom literature and the Psalms, creation is depicted as an active and evident witness to God's identity and it bears witness in a chorus of worship. Psalm 89 reads, the very heavens shall praise thy wondrous works and thy truth in the congregation of the saints. The heavens and the earth are depicted as testifying to God's nature, to his works in history, and to his coming triumph over evil. In Gerard Manley Hopkins' wonderful poem, God's Grandeur, and I mean wonderful in the strictest sense of the word. It's a poem full of wonder. He begins by insisting the world is charged with the grandeur of God, and he goes on to suggest that modern men and women fail to perceive the revelation that's offered in nature because we're so preoccupied with practical matters. All is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell where the scriptures present creation as a beautiful epiphany and the dynamic origin of imaginative activity, modern culture and sadly many modern Christians see creation as material to which we do something but not a source from which we receive something. But we need to recognize that we will not receive its meaning, we won't perceive the revelatory power of creation unless we approach creation with imaginations that are properly tuned Canadian philosopher George Parkin Grant once noted that North Americans tend to lack, quote, the recognition that our response to the whole world should not most deeply be that of doing, that is of doing something with it, nor even that of terror and anguish, but that of wondering or marveling at what is, being amazed or astonished by it, or perhaps best in a discarded English usage, admiring it." Art is a way of admiring and engaging a meaningful and wonderful creation. God presents us in creation with materials and forms that artists transform, but they're always tethered to some order that's implicit in creation. Theologian Peter Lighthart has observed that, quote, the artist is always transforming, but this transfiguration is an attempt to get at dimensions of what's really there, not an abandonment of what's really there, even if the artist is aiming at fantasy. Art attempts to highlight patterns, correspondences, dimensions to reality that are usually missed in our everyday experience and to force us to look again at the sunflower or the pipe or the chair as the russian formalists say one of the purposes of art is to defamiliarize the familiar close quote. the artist is always responding to the reality of creation in some way even in the most abstract artistic forms and the best artists are open to receiving something from creation before they can transfigure it an artist has to sense creation with an exceptional acuity. Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper has a little book of essays called Only the Lover Sings. Art and Contemplation is the subtitle. And in that book he observes that quote, to contemplate means first of all to see, and not to think. A kind of seeing that is receptive and open and not just accurate. When I say that artists perceive creation, I don't just mean trees and birds and sunsets, but also what we might call the components of creation, colors and shapes and sounds and textures, as well as all of the various human activities within creation. The ways our bodies inhabit space and time, the, way, the ways that words work, with all of their intriguing textures and resonances, and the shape of our inner lives, sorrow and memory and grief and affliction. All of the aspects of nature and human nature have to be attended to lovingly, and then reassembled, reconfigured, remixed. Human creativity is not creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. It is creation out of something, a something that God has already blessed with meaning. Creation is meaningful revelation and its meaning can be perceived as we're imaginatively involved in the stuff of creation. The God we worship, the maker of heaven and earth, has made us as creatures whose lives are fulfilled as we engage creation well. I have to confess I get nervous when I read or hear Christian artists talk about the relationship between faith and art only in terms of art as an expression of spirituality or as art as a gateway to transcendence. It's not that these statements are untrue, but I think they run the risk of presenting Christianity in Gnostic and disembodied terms. We shouldn't be ashamed of the fact that our faith integrates spirit and body, that our faith calls us to regard the stuff of creation in all of its materiality and particularity and it's good in that particularity and it offers the best starting point for the practice and pleasures of art. While our thinking of, as Christians may be suspicious about the goodness of creation, we should recognize that Christian worship is always inescapably involved imaginatively with the stuff of creation. The poetry of the Psalms was recited by our Lord and his disciples Music was a part of Christian worship, at least since choirs of angels greeted the nativity of the incarnate Christ, and possibly earlier, whether Mary sang her remarkable song inspired by her miraculous pregnancy or simply spoke it, we don't know, although it's still sung week after week in churches around the world. And artful expressions in worship have been present in less obvious ways. It's notable that the communion table contains bread and wine, not wheat and grapes. It's not organic material in its most natural state that serves as a memorial meal uniting us to God. Bread and wine are the product of human creativity, not simply of God's blessing of the harvest. Even grain and grapes require attentive care to bring them to fruition, and wine is an even more artful product. Bread demands attentiveness to the details of creation Bakers and vintners aren't people we usually think of as people involved with the arts, but the work they do has a lot in common with the work that artists do. They take the stuff of creation and they transform it into something delightful and beautiful. Bread, wine, and art can all serve practical purposes, but they often go beyond necessity toward delight. Peter Lighthart, again has observed that art is a making that imitates the making of God and it is most God-like when it is purely gratuitous when it is not meeting a need. The creation is gratuitous. It's not something God needed to do. But we rejoice and give thanks both in worship and in the arts that he chose to do so. In worship, we honor the creator for the gift of creation and of salvation. In works of art, we imitate God's act of delighted and gratuitous making. And in the Lord's Supper, we receive a great feast, a table set for us not because we deserve it or even because we need it. God's salvation could have been less extravagant, more perfunctory than a feast, just as the wine that Jesus made from water could have been merely passable rather than notably fine as the wedding guests judged it to be The gifts that God gives are given generously as well as gratuitously. When we receive a great gift, we're delighted in the gift and in the generosity of the giver, and so it is with the reception of a powerful work of art. When I hear a thoughtful and attentive performance of a carefully crafted piece of music or when I watch a masterfully constructed film, I often have that sense of gratitude, not just to the performers and the composer or the director and the actors, but to God. Grateful that I live in a world where such joys are possible. And the gratitude felt by the recipients of a gift resonates with the delight that is known by the giver of the gift. Artistic, imaginative, creative activity is not simply a pleasant and rewarding ornament that we might use to decorate our lives or to make them less boring. Rather, artistic activity is evidence to us of the kinds of creatures we are, the kind of creator that God is, and the kind of world in which he's placed us to love and serve him as we exercise our stewardship over that world. Art provides us with ways of perceiving reality aright but not all art does this or does it well. And not all of us have allowed our imaginations to be disciplined to encourage that perception. Just as our thinking can be captive to worldly conclusions, so our imaginations can become preoccupied with novelty or with artistic expression that's merely interesting or flattering or trivializing. At an arts conference back in 2003 at Seattle Pacific University, poet Dana Joya, who later became the chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, insisted that, quote, art is a distinctive and re- irreplaceable way of knowing the world, because it alone, unlike science or philosophy, uses and engages the fullness of our humanity. Art simultaneously addresses our intellect, our senses, our emotions, our imagination, our intuition, our memory, and our physical body, not separately, but together, simultaneously, holistically. This capacity of art to engage us with the world is lost on many modern people, Christian or non-Christian, because today, many of us treat art largely as a therapeutic thing something that enables a sense of happiness or well-being, something that makes us feel better, rather than something that actually helps us understand the order that's present in creation. Now, this word imagination that we associate with the arts, the word imagination is often assumed to refer to making something up. That's not really what imagination is or does. The imagination most basically enables us to perceive the meaning of things. Imagination is a receptive organ before it's a creative organ. That is, we receive things, we perceive things through imagination. Imagination allows us to take the things that we perceive through our senses, our sight and hearing and touch, and to convert them into a recognition or knowledge of something that transcends mere sense experience. Thomas Howard, another writer who's written very perceptively about imagination, a book called Chance or the Dance. He says, it's common enough for us to think of imagination as something for the poets, or if it has anything to do with us, as brought into play only in our reveries when we dream of flying away to some fruited island in a tropical sea, but it is more than that It is something that is at work in us every moment of our lives, sleeping and waking, and that shapes every thought we have about ourselves or anything else. Imagination is the recognition of likenesses in things and ultimately likenesses between lower things and higher things. We don't think of imagination typically as a way of knowing because we've inherited an enlightenment ideal of detached knowledge, analytic knowledge, knowledge that's more like the way computers know. And that enlightenment ideal tended to produce a very severe sense of alienation from creation, a breach between the knower and the known. And that really planted the seeds for the devaluing of art and imagination. But from the standpoint of Christian belief, the alienating account of how we know creation given by the enlightenment misrepresents our nature and the nature of nature. It's out of keeping with the biblical account of the kind of creatures we are and the kind of world God has placed us in. Art presupposes a coherence and an intelligibility in creation, even when artists deny creation those qualities. Works of art work because the world is a creation, not simply a meaningless cosmic accident. And even people who believe that the world is a product of chance and not a dance, to allude to Tom Howard's book title. Even people who do believe that the world is a product of chance often can't help when they work creatively to behave otherwise. That fact came up in an interview I did years ago with Richard Wilbur, one of the greatest American poets, I think, of the the 20th century. And Wilbur and I talked about the centrality of metaphor in poetry, how poetry works by likening one thing to another. So for example, in Psalm one, we read that a righteous person is compared to a tree, sustained in its life and its fruitfulness by life giving water. Wilbur said to me, the power of metaphor, quote, puts almost every poet in danger of being religious. If anything may be compared to anything else, if the world can be seen as a linkage of similes and metaphors and figures, then poetry itself comes very close to declaring that all things are co-natural. That is, they are all of one nature. And that brings you to the threshold of saying that all things have had a maker. But consistent denial of the fact that the world is charged with the grandeur of God can also undermine the work of the imagination. When recognition of the divinely gifted meaningfulness of creation is lost, then art becomes difficult if not impossible. And that's a fate that Friedrich Nietzsche lamented in the late 1870s. Nietzsche, the one who said God is dead and who reflected painfully on the cultural consequences of the loss of confidence in the existence of God. He once wrote, with profound sorrow, one admits to oneself that in their highest flights, the artists of all ages have raised to heavenly transfiguration precisely those conceptions or those beliefs which we now recognize as false. And here he's referring to the core beliefs of Christianity. If belief in such truth declines in general, then that species of art can never flourish again, which like the Divine Comedy, the paintings of Raphael, the frescoes of Michelangelo, the Gothic cathedrals. A moving tale will one day be told how there once existed such an art, such an artist's faith. Nietzsche realized what was going to be lost, that imagination and creativity were essentially undone by a loss of belief in God. If one presupposes that there's nothing beyond physical reality, then imagination is prevented from fulfilling its purpose. Because the highest work of the imagination is to enable us to experience physical things as more than merely physical things. I'm reminded here of the opening of the first epistle of John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The incarnation establishes an essential continuity between us and God and the world that we inhabit. It's on the basis of that continuity that both reason and imagination can confidently and properly take up with the world and that the knowledge we acquire about the world need not be pure geometry or just a a logical sequence of abstractions to be valid. The work of Christ in redeeming us not only reverses our alienation from God, because the work of redemption is accomplished by a man who in his resurrection and ascension is still a man, our salvation and our union with God doesn't require the repudiation of the physical realities of creation. If the whole fullness of the deity can dwell bodily in one man, then we can be assured that the material world is capable of mediating the meaning of supernatural realities to us. And that mediation is a process that involves the imagination, a process most richly achieved in works of art So affirming the incarnation and delighting in the incarnation is an important step in reclaiming confidence in the capacities of the imagination. Remember, the Logos made flesh is the one in whom all things hold together. Everything in creation has its integrity, its coherence, its order, and hence its rationality and intelligibility, its knowableness in Christ. The meaning and meaningfulness of everything is sustained by an intrinsic connection to Christ. All things are and are what they are by Christ. Pope Benedict in a Christmas sermon in 2008 said that what John calls in his gospel in Greek, logos, that word can also mean the meaning. Thus we can understand John's word as the eternal meaning of the world made himself tangible to our senses and our minds. We may now touch him and contemplate him. The meaning that became flesh is not merely a general idea inherent in the world. It is a word addressed to us. The Logos knows us, calls us, guides us. Christ the Logos is the source of the world's intelligibility, its perceptible meaning and the human imagination is the organ of meaning, the faculty whereby we recognize that intelligibility. But in closing, let me stress, we cannot merely recognize the meaningfulness of creation, we can wonder at it, we can marvel at it, we can take great joy in it. The meaningfulness of creation takes on the form of beauty, not just rationality, and the experience of beauty enabled by the imagination of the artist and the recipient of the art, can be a way to God, the source of beauty. A secularized and materialistic society has no adequate way of accounting for the experience of beauty. As unlikely as it may sound, Christians are the best candidates to be custodians of beauty and nurturers of the imagination We haven't done a very good job in that regard in recent decades, either because of suspicion or indifference. But we're living in a time when more and more people suffer from despair, in large measure I believe because they believe that the idea of a meaningful life is ridiculous. In the midst of this quest for meaning, I think Christians need to commit themselves to the cultivation of faithful, and attentive imaginations and to the recovery of confidence in the power of beauty. And in those commitments, I believe that we can make more compelling our witness to the word made flesh and to the love that he has for the wonderful world that he has made. Thank you very much.
0: Author and audio producer, Ken Myers, speaking in April 2019 in Bangor, Maine. To make a comment or offer a suggestion about the Notable Speeches podcast, email us feedback at notablespeeches.com. And we invite you to follow us on Twitter at Notable Speeches. If you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast via a podcast app, we hope you'll do so. Thank you for listening. I'm Joseph Slife.